On today's episode, we have a continuation of my series on DC movies where I'll be covering Batman Forever from 1995. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said we've got a dc movie in batman forever and i promise i'll cover movies other than batman movies but for right now that's kind of where i'm at i'm just covering the last of the batman movies that i haven't talked about yet so for a little basic background on podcasting, I guess I just kind of wanted to talk about what you need if you're an up-and-coming podcaster, if you want to to just kind of get going in the podcast game. There are some things that you need. Obviously, you need a decent microphone. I, I don't know that I have like an amazing microphone. It's a Blue Yeti, but it's definitely better than the one I originally started recording with, which was not quite as high quality. You could just tell it wasn't coming through in the microphone at all. Then, of course, you need a good mouse because you'll find that you'll do a lot of editing when you record podcasts because there's so much shit to say and half the time you fuck up what you're saying or whatever and you just have to fucking go in and correct it and it ends up taking at least double the amount of time to go through and edit a podcast as it does to record it. So there's that. You also need a good keyboard because you'll find that it's a lot easier to use the keyboard. I have a mouse that actually has built-in customizable buttons that you can actually program with keyboard shortcuts, and it's pretty fucking nifty, but at the same time, I need to find a new mouse because I think I might need to find a corded one because basically this mouse just is so laggy. It's like you'll move the mouse and it'll take forever for the computer to register it. And it's Bluetooth, so I thought it would be like a better connection than one of the plug-in ones with the USB receiver on it. No, it's not. And actually, I tried, to be fair, the other USB mouse that I have, it's like I plugged that in when I was getting tired of my Bluetooth mouse and it was as bad, if not worse, than the Bluetooth mouse. So... I don't know. I I don't know what to think, honestly. Then you also need good audio recording and editing software. And there are a lot of available options at your disposal. Audacity is a popular one because it's freeware and you can just use it and you never have to pay for it. And they don't even basically suggest that you should ever have to pay for it. Then there's this program called Reaper, which is... Good, I find it very difficult to get into the swing of things with it. It's basically just a very complicated program, and I assume once I get the hang of everything, it's going to be fine, but I don't know how to do a lot of stuff that I can do in Audacity in like two seconds. It's like there's all of these goofy ways that you have to make all of these adjustments and things like that, because like when I go through and I record an episode right at the end of it, I go and I do what they call a noise gate, and that reduces a lot of the in-between 
little sounds that you might hear while I'm recording. And then I go and do this truncate silence, which it's like you'll have a gap between words that you're saying. And all of a sudden you can just truncate silence and close that gap right down and just make it so it's a much smaller, less awkward amount of dead time in the recording. And I also do, I do some compressing and amplifying of the audio and that seems to be working pretty good. I haven't done that for very long, but I do like the sound of it. It sounds a lot better than what I'm used to hearing in my old recordings. Then of course you need an RSS feed, which is basically the way that you can upload your podcasts to different platforms and services. And basically you just go in and upload the podcast to this RSS feed. And then you go and you upload the RSS feed link to the different podcast sites. And basically that's all you have to do. And it'll just update all of the platforms with your different episodes as they come out. You can use the RSS feed to schedule podcasts and things like that. It's pretty interesting the way it works. And on that same token, you want to upload that podcast to as many platforms as you possibly can and just make it more accessible to people. They don't want to be like using a certain service and you didn't bother to upload it so they can't listen to it on the podcast platform of choice for them. So that's, I mean, that's where it's at with the different podcasting stuff. I mean, obviously reach out to me if you really think you're interested in starting a podcast. It's a fun little hobby for me. I obviously don't get a lot of listeners and that can be frustrating, but at the same time, I do view it as a hobby. And I essentially have said before, the like the reason I pick any movies that I pick for any episode is because I am my most avid listener and I just absolutely love listening to my own podcast, as dumb as that might sound. It's just a lot of fun. So our movie today, the one and only, is Batman Forever, released on June 16th, 1995, loosely based on DC Comics characters. And I say loosely based because a lot of what we see in this movie is not true to the comics, in my opinion. I don't think that they're really uh, portrayed like they appeared in the comics or in a lot of other iterations of the characters. For the director, we have Joel Schumacher. He made The Lost Boys, which I really don't like. I think it's about teenage vampires or something like that. I watched it a really long time ago because I was told it was really good, and I just didn't find it to be that compelling of a movie. Then he made Falling Down, which is a solid one. I've talked about it before on this podcast. It's one with Michael Douglas, and it's got just this guy that kind of goes apeshit when he gets fed up with his life and all of this stuff, and he just kind of like leaves his car in a traffic jam on the freeway and decides he's going to go on a little rampage and deal with all these people that are irritating to him. He also made A Time to Kill, which is solid. I think I might have covered this one on my blog. It's got Matthew McConaughey and Sandra Bullock and Samuel L. Jackson, and I really like it. I think it's a solid movie. I don't really know if it's, like, super great. Like, it's not one that I want to watch over and over again, but it's a solid movie. He did a pretty good job with it. And then the other one I wanted to mention was Batman and Robin, previously covered on this podcast, and 
I said all I really have to say about Batman and Robin in that episode. I don't really like it. I think it's hot garbage. I just don't really care for much of anything in the movie. But it's fun to go back and watch and make fun of because it's very clearly not a good movie. And there are also, I do want to say, there are also people out there. I follow a lot of Batman pages and groups and stuff. And there are so many fucking people in the comments sections that claim that they they really like Batman Forever or Batman and Robin a lot. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. You, you're entitled to your opinion. But it's like, I don't, I don't believe that the vast majority of people would think that Batman and Robin is a good movie at all. For the writers, we have Lee Batchelor, Janet Scott Batchelor, and Akiva Goldsman. For the producers, we have Tim Burton and Peter McGregor Scott. For the score slash soundtrack, we have composer Elliot Goldenthal, who is truly an awful composer. I don't like any score he's ever done. I, I guess I would say... The ones that I notice the music in, I don't particularly like. Some of them, I think, are a little more subtle by this guy, but he's not good. I Oh, man. Especially, I'll, I'll talk about it, but I just, I really don't care for him. But the soundtrack is also notable for having Kiss from a Rose by Seal, and that one was a really popular song in its day. And it's also got a lot of other great songs. I'd probably say that this is the best Batman soundtrack that there is out there. It's got a lot of cool songs in it. It's just unfortunate that it has to be paired with this movie. For the cast, we have Val Kilmer, who plays Bruce Wayne slash Batman. And he was in Top Gun with Tom Cruise. And that was solid. And he was also in the follow-up Top Gun Maverick that came out this last summer, 2022. And that was a really popular sequel. A lot of people loved it. I thought it was pretty decent, but I also didn't think it was like that amazing either. He was also in Top Secret, which is a great parody movie. Honestly, I watched it for the first time all the way through within the last year, I want to say. And it's so fucking good. I mean, honestly, Val Kilmer is perfect for that kind of role. He really played it the right way and just was straight faced the whole time and deadpan and just kind of letting these ridiculous things happen around him. He was in a movie called Willow with Warwick Davis, and I don't get the appeal of Willow. It's not my kind of movie at all, and I just don't really like to sit and watch it. It's just not interesting to me. I don't know. I mean, the story, the time period that it's supposed to be in, I just don't like those kinds of time period movies. And last but not least, I've mentioned this several times on this podcast, but Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. is a movie that you absolutely need to check out. I really can't stress that enough. It's so fucking good. It's so funny, and it's got such a good story. I just think it's so underrated, honestly. I don't feel like a lot of people know about it, or they see it, and they're like, meh, I don't know if that looks any good. And I get it because, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. didn't exactly have a great track record leading up to Iron Man. So it's kind of like, yeah, I understand where you're coming from, but please, for the love of God, check it out. It's so great. Then we have Jim Carrey, who plays Edward Nigma slash The Riddler. And he was in Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, and The Mask. And the, all those movies came out in 1994. 
I mean, how fucking busy was Jim Carrey in 1993 with making all of these fucking movies? I mean, it's pretty fucking astounding that he was in all of them, and they were all fairly large hits. I don't know which one was most successful, but they were all very amusing movies. I don't think Ace Ventura has stood the test of time very well, because there's a lot of transphobia in it and things like that, but I mean, other than that, they're fucking solid movies, they're solid comedies, but... At the same time, a lot of people, Jim Carrey is not their cup of tea, and I can't hold that against them at all. It's kind of like, yeah, I get it. He's not for everybody. He was also in Liar Liar, and that movie was, I remember thinking it was funny in the 90s when it came out, but I've gone back and watched it since then, and I don't think the humor is very great. It's just kind of dumb. I, I don't know, but I know... A lot, especially like my cousins love that movie. They know all the words to it and all that shit. And they just find it so funny. I just can't quite get there with it in present day. And then this other one, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, is one that I've talked about on this podcast as well. And this is a fucking solid movie. And it's honestly one of those ones that I would say, don't find out anything about this movie before you go and put it on. Because it's such an interesting movie it's such an interesting idea and it's so well executed it's just it's very fun to watch it's but it's like also i will say it's also a little depressing so just be warned about that then we have tommy lee jones who plays harvey dent slash two-face he was in a movie called under siege with steven seagal And he played, I think, the bad guy in that movie. That movie is basically just supposed to be Die Hard on a Navy ship. And it has Steven Seagal, so that just really weighs down the quality level. It's like, it probably could have been great with anybody other than Steven Seagal. But it's not unwatchable or anything like that if you're, like, considering checking it out. It's not terrible to sit through. It's just you have to deal with Steven Seagal's ways and mannerisms and things like that. He was also in The Fugitive, which is either previously covered on this podcast or soon to be covered on this podcast. I don't know which it'll be. I'm not sure which order I'll put these out in. I'm hoping to do it. I was thinking I would put all these DC movies out in order, but I'd also kind of like to make it random, like Brandon at random, so I could just put a bunch of different episodes out in the DC series and do them like in the order I recorded them as opposed to the order that they actually were released but I don't know he was in Men in Black and that one has Will Smith in it it's honestly a fave of mine I'll probably cover it on this podcast at some point but it's a really great little kind of science fiction type movie it's very it, it it has stood the test of time I'll say that it's basically like they, I mean, it's, it has and it hasn't. It's kind of funny because, like, Tommy Lee Jones's character K shows Will Smith's character J this little bitty CD and says that it's gonna, it's gonna replace the CD someday. And boy, oh boy, they could not have been more wrong about that. He was also in Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd, and I really like that one. I haven't watched it in a really long time, but it's, basically about this woman who gets framed for the murder of her husband, and then she serves her prison time and finds out that the husband is actually still alive and clearly 
set her up. And so basically she goes and wants to fucking kill this guy. And it's a pretty fucking solid concept for a movie because the whole double jeopardy thing is like you can't be charged for the same crime twice. But you could, I think, be charged with murder in a different degree or something like that in these instances where somebody actually didn't die. But I mean... All she would have to do is, like, prove that he was still alive and make that her shtick instead of killing him. But I could see wanting to kill him. So then we have Nicole Kidman, who I have noted here is hot. She plays Dr. Chase Meridian, and she was in the movie Days of Thunder. I think that was the first thing I ever saw her in. And she must have been, like, super early 20s in that. And I remember, like, just being enamored with her. And then she was also in The Others, which is a horror movie from, I think, the early 2000s. And it's a pretty solid horror movie, honestly. I mean, it's not great, but it's pretty solid. It's basically just these people live in this house that they think it's haunted and stuff. You know, they keep having reasons to believe it's haunted and there are ghosts present. She was in this movie called The Killing of a Sacred Deer with... Colin Farrell, and basically, it is a fucked up movie, honestly, but it's a very good movie, It's but it's one of those ones that I've seen it on lists that I totally agree with that say it's the kind of movie you only ever want to watch one time and then you're good with it, you don't need any more, it's like you got your fill the first time around. And last but not least, she was in Aquaman, and she plays Aquaman's mother, the Queen of Atlantis, and it's a... Not a bad movie. I just haven't gone back and revisited it. I mean, I saw it in theaters and then I bought it for some reason and then I just haven't gone back and watched it and basically I'm antsy about doing so because I I don't know. I mean, it was good. It's just I wasn't over the moon about it for some reason. Then we have Chris O'Donnell who plays Dick Grayson slash Robin. He was in Scent of a Woman with Al Pacino and I believe Al Pacino won an Oscar for that performance. I will talk about Chris O'Donnell more later in this episode, but suffice it to say, he's just not my favorite. He was in Fried Green Tomatoes, previously covered on this podcast. That was the one that I did with my sister, and I talked about him a little bit there. I just, I have my mixed feelings about him as an actor. I don't know that he's very particularly good, but he was decent in that. I just remember that being like, an okay role for him. It was pretty small. He didn't last very long in the movie. And he was also in the movie The Three Musketeers from the early 90s, and he played D'Artagnan. I seem to remember that being mostly American people in it, and I don't remember if they used accents. I know it was a big thing in the early 90s, like with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where Kevin Costner didn't use an accent because he couldn't do an accent. For casting notes, Sam Raimi and John McTiernan were also considered to direct before Joel Schumacher was selected, and man, I would have loved to have seen either of those guys take this franchise over and turn it into something else. It would have been fucking amazing, honestly. I mean, John McTiernan is the guy that directed Die Hard. Sam Raimi is the guy that directed the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies and the Evil Dead movies, which I'm not a big fan of, but I still think that he would have been much better for this than Joel Schumacher. I honestly don't even know. Based on Joel Schumacher's 
filmography before Batman Forever, I don't know what compelled the studio to pick him. I don't know what made them think this guy can do really well. I think it had something to do with him being able to use a minimal budget to make a pretty solid movie out of, and they like liked that idea of saving money, probably, even though they gave him a huge fucking budget based on 1995 money to make this movie. Michael Keaton initially approved of new director Joel Schumacher taking over the franchise from Tim Burton and planned to be in the film, but ultimately did not like the new direction of the franchise and rejected the script and left the project. Rene Russo was originally cast in the part of Dr. Chase Meridian, but she was considered too old to be paired with Kilmer when he was cast. Sandra Bullock, Robin Wright, Gene Triplehorn, and Linda Hamilton were all considered for the role that ultimately went to Nicole Kidman. Ethan Hawke turned down the role of Batman and later regretted his decision. Keanu Reeves, Alec and William Baldwin, Dean Cain, Tom Hanks, Kurt Russell, Rafe Fiennes, Daniel Day-Lewis, and Johnny Depp were also considered for the title role. Val Kilmer signed on to this movie without reading the script or finding out who the director would be. Al Pacino, Clint Eastwood, Martin Sheen, and Robert De Niro were all considered for the role of Two-Face before Tommy Lee Jones was cast. Robin Williams, John Malkovich, Brad Dourif, Kelsey Grammer, Matthew Broderick, Phil Hartman, Steve Martin, Adam Sandler, and Rob Schneider were all considered for the Riddler before Jim Carrey was cast. Marlon Wayans was still under contract to play Robin, but Schumacher decided to open the part up to other actors. Among those considered were Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, Mark Wahlberg, Ewan McGregor, Jude Law, Alan Cumming, and Christian Bale, but Bale later denied the rumor of having auditioned for the role. And I'm guessing that's going to be like a his story against theirs. I mean, I clearly that rumor came from somewhere, but it could have just been made up because the internet likes to do that sometimes. For the plot synopsis, we have the Caped Crusader and the quote-unquote Boy Wonder face off against the vengeful Two-Face and the flamboyant Riddler who hatch a plot to steal private information directly from people's minds. For the tagline, we have Courage Now, Truth Always, Batman Forever. All right, isn't that fucking nice? Okay, so I guess let's just dive right into this fucking plot. So these opening credits are incredibly over the top, and I'm just going to say this once. I fucking hate the score of this movie a lot. I don't like the sound of it, and it's too lighthearted. It just drives me fucking bonkers to actually listen to it and watch the movie while it's playing. There's a nice little suiting up sequence in the Batcave where Batman's grabbing gadgets and it doesn't really seem that bad just yet. But then we get the dumbest, ugliest Batmobile of any of them coming up from, I don't know, below the floor on like a turntable. I don't know what the fuck's going on with this. The design of this Batmobile is just a tad too flashy considering Batman is kind of supposed to dwell in the shadows and stuff. But this one has a bunch of fucking bright lights on it. I mean, the wheels light up, the fucking whole engine area lights up, and it's just, I don't know what the fuck they were thinking, other than, I guess it fits this movie, to be fair. 
Then we get this exchange where Alfred asks Batman if he'd like to take a sandwich with him, and Batman just says, I'll get drive through Has there ever been a shittier exchange of dialogue to set the tone for a movie or as an obvious attempt to create a moment that will most definitely be used in fast food commercials? I couldn't fucking say. I mean, it's pretty fucking bad. It's equally bad in Batman and Robin, where Robin immediately says, I want a car. Chicks dig the car. And Batman says, this is why Superman works alone. That's fucking worse. Honestly, it's gotta be worse. We finally see Two-Face after nearly three minutes of buildup, and he's flipping his coin. He's got the security guard tied up, and the security guard turns out to be one of the top 15 most annoying performances in this movie, probably. In a movie full of ridiculous sequences, I've gotta say, this is the first, but probably not the worst. I mean, it's definitely setting the stage for the rest of the movie, Tommy Lee Jones almost starts off on the right foot portraying Two-Face before immediately becoming way too over the top and animated in everything that he does. He keeps tossing his coin to make his decisions, which is actually true to the character despite everything else not even coming close. The coin tells him to throw the guard in the vault that is, I guess, designed to be somewhat mobile despite being presumably several stories up and probably never going anywhere. Then we get Nicole Kidman as Dr. Chase Meridian. She's with Commissioner Gordon at the street level, and she is honestly just so thirsty for some Batman D. She can hardly fucking stand it, you can just tell. She was brought in by Commissioner Gordon because I guess she's supposed to lend insight on what villains like Two-Face have going on in their head. She's being super flirty with Batman when he arrives, and She turns around and, in a rookie move by the filmmakers, we actually see Batman walk away while she's talking and facing away from him before she turns around to realize that he's gone. You should always do, like, a tighter close-up for a shot like this and not make the audience aware that Batman has left before the character getting bamboozled does. I don't understand, though. Like, Two-Face says, let's start this party with a bang, and a wrecking ball smashes into the wall behind him and somehow slowly keeps moving and creeps by him. Like, no, that's just not how the laws of physics work at all, guys. I don't know where he's got this wrecking ball, Where who is controlling the crane that's swinging it and all this stuff. I don't have any answers for that. All of Two-Face's goons line up and wait at the elevator for Batman to come up, and then when the bell dings, Two-Face says, blast him. We don't really get an explanation for this, but they shoot a bunch of bullets through the elevator door, and then the door opens and Batman is just alive for some reason. Like, was it his bulletproof armor? How was he able to accomplish this? I don't know. So Batman fights the goons, and he shoots one of them with what I guess is supposed to be an electrical charge type thing, and the goon reacts by making the noise, and I don't know why he would do this. Like, that's not usually how you react to a taser or a stun gun or something. Like, you're generally just down for the count, and you're, like, fucking out. Honestly, the gadgets and the fighting themselves are not bad at all to me in this scene, but it's like the choices they make with how they're reacted to is fucking idiotic. It doesn't make any sense. Batman defeats the last of the goons and finds the guard tied up with tape over his mouth in the vault, and when Batman pulls the tape off, the guard immediately says it's a trap, 
and the door closes seemingly by itself because clearly no one was around, this Batman is pretty easily fooled by what he should instantly recognize as a trap, and he should just scope out the area beforehand to figure out what might be going on. So the door closes, and somehow this helicopter pulls the vault out of the building through the hole the wrecking ball made. Could you not see this giant chain attached to the vault before you got inside it, Batman? Were you really not paying that much attention? Also, how did they attach this chain to the helicopter from the vault? How was all of this accomplished? I feel like there has to be some convenient editing trickery to not give away what's going on to the audience. It's just, I don't buy that Batman isn't figuring that out. Furthermore, I've talked about this before, but how much can the average helicopter lift and tow? I looked up the lifting capacity of multiple helicopters on Google, and it seems mildly plausible that Two-Face's helicopter could lift this vault, depending on its weight, but I'm still skeptical about it. I'm not really sure I buy that this helicopter could lift this vault. Anywho, Batman and the guard are in this vault, suspended above the crowded city, and Two-Face announces over the loudspeaker about how he's going to kill Batman. Somehow the walls of the vault begin spraying out what the guard refers to as boiling acid, which is very subtle exposition, but how the fuck did this guy know so quickly that it was acid at all? Two-Face says it's the same type of acid that made him into Two-Face, and I guess he's thinking that's like poetic justice? Batman takes off the guard's hearing aid to use to listen to crack open the safe, which is designed to lock from the inside as well as the outside, but I guess that's not so ridiculous because you probably would want to design a vault so it wasn't easily released from the inside, so I guess that's not so ridiculous. I do like Val Kilmer as Batman. I'll always say that his interpretation of this character is spectacular and was ruined by the movie it happened to appear in, Batman gets out of the vault and fires a bat grapnel, and this part is just so fucking unbelievably ridiculous, I can hardly stand it. The bat rope is like a heavy-duty chain or cable with a hook on the end of it, and he fires this hook through this wall in a building that would have to be so insanely brittle to allow something with as little power as that breakthrough. Then, Batman just hooks the other end of the cable to the vault and cuts the heavy-duty chain to the helicopter with a torch in, like, two fucking seconds, and this fucking vault just magically swings right back into the place that it originally started in, and there are no issues whatsoever, and somehow Batman's little chain was able to support the weight of this fucking thing, especially with it dropping down and, like, really jerking the fucking chain. Now Batman's hanging from the chain to the helicopter to get to Two-Face, so Two-Face steers the helicopter into a light-up sign to hopefully get rid of and or kill Batman. This one I really need an explanation for because Batman is hanging way down on this chain. They fly through this sign, and the helicopter comes out the other side completely unscathed, and... The chain is just dangling with no Batman on it, and of course Two-Face rejoices in the assumption that he killed Batman, but suddenly Batman's cape drapes over the helicopter windshield, so Two-Face shoots the pilot, and Batman tries to get into the cab. I don't know though, like, did he use a bat rope to get to the helicopter? Why didn't he do that sooner than this? I don't know. I, I guess it was just, uh opportunity to have a cool 
explosion and all this stuff. Batman and Two-Face have a struggle with Batman trying to get inside the cab and Two-Face knocks him out of the window again and puts a literal car club on the helicopter's steering wheel. And it was honestly like one of those ones that were popular in the 90s. He happens to just have it with him to use just in case. And you may be thinking, Brandon, why on earth would a helicopter have an actual steering wheel that looks like it belongs on a car? Is that really a thing? And the answer is, I don't know. So Two-Face escapes in a parachute after he sets the helicopter on course for the Gotham version of the Statue of Liberty, and Batman just narrowly escapes before the crash. Presumably the next day, Bruce Wayne comes to visit some sort of R&D department at Wayne Enterprises, where Edward Nigma works. Nigma is played by Jim Carrey in this movie, and I have a hot take that I'd like to share. Jim Carrey is not only not good in this movie, but he's probably the worst part of it. He's obnoxious and just has to be doing over-the-top Jim Carrey horseshit at every turn. I don't like it at all. Nigma is obsessed with Bruce and has a bunch of magazine clippings of Bruce's pictures in his workspace. He comes out to greet Bruce and it's clear that Nigma's boss was avoiding having the two of them meet. The boss is not a big fan of Nigma. Bruce asks him what's on his mind and he shows Bruce's invention that beams TV signals directly into the minds of people and manipulates brainwaves to do so. So Nigma pleads with Bruce to get help with doing human trials, and we get this moment that is so insane to me. Bruce seems interested and tells him he wants a bunch of information on the device. And then when he goes to tell Nigma to talk to his assistant to set something up so they can meet and discuss it, suddenly Nigma just demands that Bruce tells him yes or no right there on the spot, and it's like even a supposed lunatic like Nigma would recognize that this literally is the first time Bruce has seen this invention and might want to have some time to go over how it works and everything like that, but nope, apparently not. Bruce sees the bat signal out of a window, then withdraws his interest in the project because Nigma's being a dick about it, and he briefly runs down just why he's going to say no to him. So he explains that the whole manipulation of brainwaves thing, it just raises too many questions and he doesn't like it. When Bruce leaves, Nigma angrily says to himself that Bruce was supposed to understand and that he'll make him understand. Bruce goes to this chair in a little room and says the word chair out loud and this tilts down the chair and drops Bruce through a trap door in the floor in front of him and he just goes to the bat cave in a little shitty primitive CGI pod. And I guess the infrastructure on this pod system was done in secret because that'd raise a lot of fucking questions. Also, I hope no one else accidentally says chair while they're sitting in that chair because that could really end badly. Batman drives up in his shitty Batmobile to the signal and this is the closest we get in this quadrilogy to a meeting atop police headquarters with Commissioner Gordon. And the reason I say we only get close is because Dr. Chase Meridian is the only one up there. And by the way, I'm just going to call her Chase from now on, so just get ready for that. My god though, Nicole Kidman was so attractive in this. She gave 8-year-old Brandon his first lady-related butterflies in his stomach, honestly. I can't deny it, she is very good looking. 
the fucking scoring when she's revealed belongs in a fucking pornographic film, and she's also wearing something that belongs in a pornographic film. Chase literally just called Batman up there to tell him that Two-Face's coin is his Achilles heel, and it can be exploited. Batman says he already knew that, and that the bat signal is not a beeper, and she reveals that wasn't all. She also clearly wants to fuck him. The dialogue between these two must have been written by a fucking soap opera writer, but actually, it truly feels worse than that. They're interrupted by Commissioner Gordon in his pajamas because, yeah, he wouldn't have changed quick before coming all the way into work. Back with Nigma, he's working late, and his boss catches him working on the project he was supposed to have terminated, so Nigma knocks him out with a fucking metal coffee carafe, I guess. I mean, it looks like a tea kettle, but... He says caffeine will kill you, and I guess there's caffeine in tea. So he gets the boss all rigged up in this device with, it's like this device that's setting on his head, and it's got these shoulder rest things to keep it steady, and he's basically just tied up in this fucking chair. My god, Carrie is just fucking obnoxious and insufferable in this movie. So Nigma uses the device to grow smarter by feeding on his boss's brain waves, and when he shuts the device off, his boss comes to, and the boss starts threatening to report him to different agencies while he's literally tied to a chair. So Nigma takes the chair and pushes it through a window at the end of the room, and the boss is prevented from falling out by the cord attached to his head. Then Nigma removes the device, and... The boss just goes plummeting down from high up and presumably dies in a watery grave. Nigma goes to the security camera and it just cuts out. Bruce hears about what happened there the next day and my god, this whole thing is the definition of inexplicable. Nigma forges a suicide note made to look like it was written by the boss, but he also somehow managed to digitally animate a fake video that made it look like the boss just ran out of the window to his death, complete with sound. The irony is that they clearly didn't CGI that footage because the actual CGI in this movie looks like it belongs in a fucking cartoon, honestly. It looks like it belongs in a shitty video game or something like that, but it's alluded to later in the movie that Edward Nigma computer-generated the imagery on the surveillance tape, and it's like, okay, I guess we can assume he's good enough to do that as well. I'm just going to make a blanket statement by saying that all Jim Carrey scenes are dripping with irritating insufferability, and that should just be assumed going forward, so I don't have to keep saying it. Bruce and his assistant find a riddle on his desk, but it doesn't say who it was from. Nigma leaves another riddle on the gate at Wayne Manor, and no one will know he put it there because I guess it can be safely assumed that billionaires just can't afford security or surveillance. Bruce goes to see Chase, and when he comes to her office, he hears what appears to be a violent struggle and the sound of her crying out. He breaks down the door and finds her hitting a punching bag, Chase looks at the riddles Bruce has found, and I guess he wants to understand the psyche of the person who is leaving them for him. That's all I can really make of it. He says that Commissioner Gordon referred him to Chase. She tells him that the person that is doing this may not stop until they kill him, and it's obviously nothing to be alarmed about. Don't even worry about it. Bruce asks her to go on a date with him by asking, Tell me, doctor, do you like the Thurketh? 
in what is just the most incomprehensibly lispy line delivery I've ever heard. And it's like, I don't think Val Kilmer has a lisp. I don't know why they left this in the movie. Then we go to the circus and get our first taste of the real stylizations of Joel Schumacher. Everyone in this circus looks like a cartoon character, honestly. Oh, and also, we get the ever-annoying interaction with Gossip Gertie, who has to be like a tabloid reporter or something, but she's fucking obnoxious too. Nigma watches on TV because, as you may well know, they always televise circuses on TV. They just always do. They introduce the Flying Graysons, and they're doing all of their swinging around acrobatics. Bruce asks Chase if she's interested in going rock climbing with him, but she turns him down and says she met someone, and Bruce says that's pretty fast work since she just moved there. But truthfully, no, it's not, Bruce. She's Nicole Kidman. Literally any man would die to be with her. So Dick Grayson, as played by Chris O'Donnell, is going to do his death drop that they need to remove the safety nets for, and there's just no way those safety nets being removed will be a major deal in a few moments. The announcer leaves the ring and gets taken out by some goons and Two-Face takes over for him. I should probably mention that Two-Face's goons have Tommy guns with light-up red magazines on them because that's just plain practical. Nigma is watching and is delighted by all of what Two-Face is doing and saying and that makes one of us. He's especially excited to know that Two-Face wants to kill Batman. Two-Face is going to detonate a ball of dynamite and kill everyone at the circus, but he's seemingly not leaving, which I guess that means that killing everyone includes himself? I don't know. The Graysons decide to intervene and get the bomb out of the tent to safety, but while Dick is disposing of the bomb, Two-Face shoots at his parents, who are up on these wires or cables or whatever they are, and I don't know if he hits them really, but they ultimately fall to their death because there's no safety net for some reason. Dick is also wearing an earring that makes it impossible to take his crying seriously. The next day, Commissioner Gordon comes to Wayne Manor to tell Bruce he needs him to take Dick in because he has no one, and it's fucking hilarious. Am I supposed to believe they just hadn't even previously discussed this arrangement, and Gordon is just dumping this responsibility on Bruce? Also, Dick appears to be in his mid-twenties, and I confirmed it with Wikipedia that he was 24, almost 25 when this came out. So it's like, maybe he just needs to get a fucking job and find his own place. Bruce brings Dick in, and Dick immediately decides that he's not going to stay there, and he's going to go after Two-Face and kill him. Bruce tells him that that'll only make the pain worse, and he should just gas up in his garage because there's not a gas station for miles. I gotta say... Chris O'Donnell's performance in this movie is pretty fucking flat, in my opinion. It's not really very well acted, I don't think. I personally don't think he's very good. Dick decides to stay upon seeing all of Bruce's cool motorcycles in his garage. Bruce goes into a room and has a flashback to his parents' death, because you probably forgot that that was a thing in the eternity it had been since you saw it last. I've gathered over the years that a lot of scenes were cut from this movie, especially those pertaining to this red leather book from when Bruce was a kid. They also cut this sequence in the cave where adult Bruce encounters a giant bat. A lot of people say hashtag release the Schumacher cut for this movie, but unless it was a completely different story 
and style, it just can't possibly make that much of an improvement to add more scenes. Especially not a giant bat sequence, let me be clear about that. Bruce is woken up by Alfred, and he says Dick's encounter is just like his parents' death. Bruce sees the bat signal outside and has to go. Alfred talks to Dick in his room and sees his motorcycle helmet that has a robin on it, and he assures Dick that someday Robin will fly again. We get this chase sequence with Batman and Two-Face, and I find it a little strange that they're chasing Batman and he's not chasing them. But I guess it makes sense with Two-Face wanting to kill him, but it doesn't really track with the rest of the movie because there are other sequences where Batman is most definitely chasing them. Now that I mention it, I would have really liked a cold open in this movie that just showed the courtroom scene where Harvey Dent gets hit with the acid instead of making it some abridged sequence we see on the news. I don't really like that. I wish it would have really set the tone if this would have opened up in a courtroom and it would have been really serious. Two-Face fires a rocket at Batman, who evades it, and it ultimately takes out a car with Two-Face's men in it. Batman does this thing where he shoots a cable to the top of a building as he's fleeing from them and drives the Batmobile up a wall to avoid being captured. I know what you're thinking, and no, that's not at all ridiculous to have him drive the Batmobile up a wall. Back with Nigma, he's trying to figure out a villain persona, and he lands on Question Mark Man, which is what I'll be calling him going forward. And luckily, he has this fortune-telling booth set up with a dummy dressed up in Question Mark Man clothes. We see Two-Face back at his hideout with the two women representing both sides of his personality, and basically this whole hideout is made to look like it's got two separate distinct sides one's lighter and happier and the other one's darker and you know more grungy then nigma comes in and introduces himself as the riddler which is what i guess i'll be calling him going forward two-face threatens to kill him but riddler is able to convince him that he could help him get batman and ultimately humiliate him before killing him we're about 55 minutes in, and our two lead villains are just now teaming up. Riddler demonstrates his box on the two women, and in this instance, they're just watching cartoons, but it's not like they're even 3D like they were with Nigma's boss earlier. They're just projecting a 2D image between the viewers and the box, and it's like, why is that going to impress anyone? I mean, I guess they don't need a TV if they have that. Riddler shows how he can put this end effector on his forehead, and beam their brainwaves directly into his head. He wants to make a deal with Two-Face to help him get a box on every TV in exchange for figuring out who Batman actually is. Two-Face flips a coin, and we really don't see how it lands, but obviously we need to have the rest of this two-hour movie for some reason, so you can assume it went the way it needed to go. Riddler and Two-Face begin robbing different places to just get some money to kind of get the thing with the boxes going. Back at Wayne Manor, Alfred offers to do Dick's laundry, but Dick says that he's not used to being waited on, and we get this super weird sequence where Dick does what I call karate laundry, and he quickly and violently hangs up his clothes, and I guess we're supposed to be blown away by this? Who knows? Just cut that scene, and nothing changes at all, and I don't have to make fun of it. And that's all. I mean, that's really what it's all about. This movie is just over two hours long. It could stand to have some cuts. It's not going to hurt it too much. 
Bruce gets another riddle, and Dick asks Alfred what this locked door is at Wayne Manor, which clearly leads to the Batcave. Alfred says that it's just the silver closet. Nigma unveils his Nigma Tech box to the public at a press conference, and I have a question about that. Do unestablished companies announcing their first ever product really ever pull in a huge crowd like this, or do they just market the product and release it? Do they really have to have a press conference? The sequence with the press conference could have easily just been replaced with a simple commercial or something. Everyone in Gotham now has a box, and their brainwaves are going directly to the Riddler, who is sitting under this green beam that's supposed to represent the brainwaves, and he's just fidgeting there, and it's weird. Just really weird. Alfred checks to see where Dick is before going into the Batcave, and Dick's way up on a balcony, so Alfred proceeds. Dick then decides to yell out, NOW! and swings around to get to the door that Alfred went through, because Alfred didn't mindfully close the door quickly behind him, he just let it idly swing shut for some reason, especially after hearing Dick yell, NOW! So Dick gets through the door before it closes and sees the Batcave, Bruce is with Chase, and he tells her about this red leather book that he's been seeing in his dreams. And honestly, this whole red leather book thing goes absolutely nowhere, because I'm pretty sure they cut most of it out. Bruce comments on all of her pictures of Batman, and there's obviously a struggle by Bruce to not tell her that he's Batman. Then Bruce gets bumped by Alfred on his video wristwatch that I'd love to know how they would have gotten to work with 1995 technology. Alfred informs Bruce that Dick took the car and has to really break it down to Bruce that he means the Batmobile. It seems like since the Batcave was behind the silver closet, he could have just told Bruce that he got into the silver closet and made it pretty obvious what he was saying, but he didn't do that. Dick is out joyriding in the Batmobile and he has to break an assault up It's this young woman being chased by a gang dressed up in black light gear and face paint. It is the choice by, I'm assuming, Joel Schumacher to have these black light things with these gangs in both Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. He stops them momentarily and kisses the girl before she runs off and the gang calls in reinforcements. This is when Batman shows up and they all flee, Dick punches the shit out of Batman's arm repeatedly, and he's clearly trying to figure out how to cope with his desire to kill Two-Face. Back at the cave, Bruce cautions Dick about being willing to take a life and how it will only lead to more of that. Bruce reveals that him and Dick are not so different because of Bruce's murdered parents. So now with the box being very successful, there is some sort of party Nygma is having that Bruce attends with Chase, Nigma unveils a new and improved box that can bring people's fantasies to life with fully interactive holographs. So Bruce questions how the box can work without extracting thoughts out of the mind and is toying with going in to try it. For some reason, even though he wants to try and turn off the power to the device before he goes in and looks and Drew Barrymore's character, who is one of the girls from Two-Face's hideout, removes the power stick and gives it to Bruce. Then, when Bruce goes in, she just puts a different stick in. How does Bruce walk into this booth and not realize that the power is still on to this machine? It's clearly running right now. Two-Face crashes the party with his goons to rob everybody, and Bruce runs out to get his bat suit from Alfred and breaks through the skylight a la that one movie with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. What's it called? Like, 
I don't know. I, it'll come to me. Chase tells Batman to meet her at her place at midnight. Then Batman pursues Two-Face outside where he jumps down a ridiculously long ways to a big construction area underground and Two-Face fills the area with gas and lights it on fire. But Batman is too good for that and survives with his fireproof cape. So Two-Face shoots him with what I guess are explosive projectiles and a bunch of dirt caves in on Batman. But suddenly, faster than humanly possible, before Two-Face could have even gotten away, Batman's all buried in this dirt, and Dick just appears to rescue him. Back at the cave, Dick wants to think of a good sidekick name, and he does say Nightwing, which is the persona that he takes on after growing out of Robin. But he also pitches the idea of Bat-Boy, and it's like, have some fucking self-respect, Richard. Nobody wants to go by Bat-Boy. He wants to be Bruce's new partner, but Bruce isn't going for it, and chastises Alfred for encouraging Dick. Bruce has this super creepy video of Chase playing on the Bat computer in this moment. So Batman goes to Chase's apartment, and she comes to the door and makes out with him, but then tells him that she's no longer interested in him because she wants someone else, and that someone else is Bruce Wayne. Batman turns around after hearing this and puts on this stupid grin because I guess he was just dying to get out of being Batman and Chase wanting him was all he had to go on. Riddler reveals to Two-Face that Batman is still alive and that the brain info from Bruce Wayne at the party reveals that he's Batman. Bruce is calling it quits with being Batman and Dick is furious and I would say I almost get it with the Nicole Kidman of it all. There'll be other girls, and you can't give up being Batman if you're Batman. Honestly, don't fucking do that. Dick is running away, and Bruce has Chase over to talk. She talks about the kind of men she's historically been into, and how they're all not right for her, or they're not good people, or whatever. And she knocks a couple of roses off the table, and when they land on the floor, this sends Bruce hurtling into deep shock and a flashback of his parents' death. It's Halloween, I guess, and Wayne Manor would probably be a desirable destination for candy, but it seems way too far out of the way. And we're to believe that these kids are just walking up by themselves into the middle of nowhere to get candy from here? I don't think so. You gotta be more efficient than that with your trick-or-treating. Riddler and Two-Face use the trick-or-treating as a means to sneak onto the property because, again, they clearly don't have surveillance there. We find out that the red leather book was Bruce's father's diary, and it's like, who gives a shit? And this is the last we hear about this red leather book. It doesn't mean anything. We don't find anything out from this red leather book. I don't really see what the point of it is. Bruce tries to tell Chase who he is, but she kisses him instead, and seemingly that makes her realize that he is Batman because they kiss the same way, and... I don't really feel like they convey this very well that she figures it out right then and there. So the Riddler inexplicably uses some device to break into the Batcave after knocking out Alfred at the door. So he throws some bombs around the cave to destroy pretty much all of it, but conveniently not some of it as we'll find out about shortly. This whole production with Riddler and the bombs is about as obnoxious as Jim Carrey gets in this film. Sorry, I had to bring it up again. Meanwhile, Two-Face shoots Bruce in the head, but somehow manages to not mortally wound him because reasons. They ultimately take Chase hostage and leave Bruce alive, and spoilers for the 1995 film Batman Forever, 
but this only happens so he can come stop the bad guys later. It's the only way that makes sense. I mean, Riddler says to Two-Face, don't kill him. If you kill him, he won't learn nothing. And they just kind of laugh, and I don't get the point of that. He won't learn nothing. Okay, whatever. Riddler explains to Chase that he's counting on Batman coming to stop them, and I'm still not 100% on the reason why they didn't kill Bruce at Wayne Manor, if that wasn't clear. So there's another riddle, and I think I forgot to mention another one at some point, but it really doesn't matter. Bruce and Alfred ascertain that all the riddles have numbers, and they further assume that those numbers, 13, 1, 8, and 5, correspond to letters of the alphabet. Then they further determine that since M-A-H-E doesn't mean anything, and maybe 1 and 8 could be 18 for R, which makes it M-R-E, or Mr. E, which is an enigma, and Bruce realizes the Riddler is actually Edward Nigma. And that's cool and all, I guess, but did you look at the Riddler's face? Did you need a series of puzzles to figure this all out? Really, Bruce, the world's greatest detective? Alfred reveals to Bruce that the only suit that made it through the explosions in the cave is this sonar suit that hasn't been tested yet, and oh yeah, the Batwing and Batboat made it too, despite the Batmobile being destroyed. How nice, it's almost like the Riddler blowing up the cave had no consequences that prevented them from doing anything as heroes. Dick is revealed, coming down in a Robin costume, and I gotta not start sentences like that ever again. Batman and Robin establish that they will work together, not just as friends, but as partners, and I guess that's supposed to be a really big moment. Hopefully Robin doesn't get all Jason Todd hot-headed and become a liability for Batman. The Riddler has projected a green question mark in the sky, with the bat signal being the dot, and Batman flies the Batwing through it, and it somehow magically turns back to white instead of green, and Commissioner Gordon is just over the moon about Batman showing up. Riddler and Two-Face play a game of real-life battleship where they blow up explosives, where Robin's in the boat and Batman's in the Batwing, and Riddler has to do this stupid announcer voice for what has to be at least the eighth time in this movie. Batman and Robin are taken out by the explosives in the water and the air, and they have to swim ashore at this island where all of the brainwaves are coming in, and it's represented by this green light beam. I think I mentioned that. And Robin says the line, Holy rusted metal, Batman. And if I still had it in me to roll my eyes at this point, I would, because that's a reference to the Burt Ward Robin from the 1960s TV show. He would always say, Holy, insert words here, Batman. And every fucking time... It's just, when I see this movie, I'm like, this is not what you want to be. I mean, the Adam West Batman series had its merits. It definitely was like a good show. It was a good comedy, and it was very unique. But at the same time, it's like, come the fuck on. Don't try and make this movie into that. Batman and Robin split up, and Robin gets a chance to kill Two-Face, but he elects to take the high road and not let him die, but ultimately, this gives Two-Face a chance to pull a gun on Robin. Batman is climbing up this tower or silo thing with water and rocks at the bottom, and it's got this mechanism that's... I don't even know what it's supposed to be for, honestly. It's just a giant metal thing that is coming down, and Batman has to figure out how to 
get rid of it. And honestly, I don't know what purpose this tower silo thing actually serves. It doesn't make any sense. Batman finds the Riddler and Two-Face, and the Riddler reveals that he not only has Chase, but Robin captive as well, and he makes him choose between the two of them, essentially pitting Bruce Wayne's life against Batman's. Either one will supposedly fall into the water at the bottom of the tower that Batman was just in. Batman decides to share a riddle with the Riddler, and it is pretty brief, so I'll just share it. He says, I see without seeing. To me, darkness is as clear as daylight. What am I? The answer is that he's as blind as a bat, and when Riddler guesses correctly, Batman says exactly, and turns on the features in his special suit. I don't really understand how the features work, or what they're doing, or how it allows him to throw a battering at Riddler's platform better, but that's what he does. Riddler then releases both Robin and Chase's glass cages, and they begin falling to their deaths because it was very bold of Batman to assume that the Riddler wouldn't have time to respond in this way. So Batman saves Chase first, then Robin, which is definitely the order I would go in. Hose before bros, am I right? So naturally, Batman gets them to something resembling safety, and Two-Face appears with the intent to kill all of them, but Batman reminds him that he has to flip his coin to decide whether or not he'll do it. So as Two-Face throws his coin, Batman pulls out a whole stack of coins and throws them into the same area too, and Two-Face plummets to his death while trying to reach for all of them. I just noticed something for the first time in this viewing that I actually like. So pretty much all of the Batman actors, starting with Keaton, speak in a lower register to differentiate them from Bruce Wayne. But in this moment, with the coins, although Val Kilmer has been using the lower register voice as Batman throughout the movie, he uses his Bruce Wayne voice seemingly on purpose here, despite being Batman, since he knows everyone there knows who he is. Also, I would have liked some better establishment of Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent having been friends, because they just have Two-Face say some throwaway line about it before he falls. As Two-Face falls into the water, his hand is sticking up and a coin lands in it. With the bad side facing up, I guess it was kind of hard to tell, honestly. The Riddler asks the question of Batman, why can't I kill you? And I think the answer is that you didn't want to do it when you had a chance at Wayne Manor, because you're a fucking moron, I suppose. Chase goes to see Nigma later on at Arkham Asylum because he's been saying that he knows who Batman is but I think we're to assume that his brain was fried by the giant box thing, the whole explosion and all of that. When Chase peeks into his cell and asks him about knowing who Batman is, he says that he is Batman and begins flapping his arms. But they establish that he remembers Chase, but doesn't somehow remember that huge piece of information about Batman somehow. Chase comes out to see Bruce outside and they make out, and Alfred creepily looks on while smiling, and we unfortunately never see Chase again. And then we roll credits. So, praise for this movie. The film is not poorly shot. And I won't say that I only say that praise as a first bullet point in movies that I find to be not good, but I will say that it is frequently the case. I will often say, a movie was not terribly shot if it was bad. Val Kilmer's performance is honestly great in this, and it's the best of the film. And also, one other praise, 
Nicole Kidman turned this bat boy into a bat man. For criticism, our two villains are a one-two punch of awfulness despite liking the two actors and other things. The score is unbelievably bad. It's way too fucking chipper and upbeat. Chris O'Donnell should have never gotten work as a professional actor in anything. This film requires way too much of a suspension of disbelief with a lot of major moments. For trivia, the original script by The Bachelors featured the introduction of a psychotic Riddler whose real name was Lyle Heckendorf. Schumacher originally wanted to adapt the comic book series Batman Year One by Frank Miller for the film, but Warner Brothers rejected the idea as they wanted a sequel, not a prequel. When Akiva Goldsman was brought on to rewrite the script, he removed the introduction of the villain Scarecrow and the return of Catwoman. Tim Burton reportedly hated the title Batman Forever and said it sounded like a tattoo someone would get while on drugs or something that some kid would write in a yearbook. Michael Keaton reportedly turned down 15, that's 1-5 million for this movie. Kilmer and Schumacher clashed during filming, with Schumacher going so far as to call Kilmer childish and impossible. In an interview with Norm MacDonald, Jim Carrey said that Tommy Lee Jones told him, I hate you, I really don't like you, I cannot sanction your buffoonery, when they crossed paths at a restaurant during filming. Jim Carrey's original idea, to shave a question mark into his scalp, had to be scratched as he was due in court to finalize his divorce. In the first Batman from 1989, District Attorney Harvey Dent was played by Billy D. Williams. Williams accepted the role with the knowledge and expectation that Dent would eventually become Two-Face. He reportedly had a clause put into his contract, reserving the role for him in any sequels, which Warner Brothers had to buy out so that they could cast Tommy Lee Jones. Williams would eventually go on to voice the character in the Lego Batman movie from 2017. Joel Schumacher originally wanted to make a much darker and more serious film that would more fully explore Bruce Wayne's growing fear that his crusade to be Batman had done more harm than good, and that Bruce was beginning to suffer from burnout, but the executives at Warner Brothers insisted on a lighter tone. So I guess I can give that to Joel Schumacher. If he wanted to kick this off and make it a serious movie, but they wouldn't let him, then I don't fully blame him. In Batman The Complete History, Michael Keaton said about turning down this film, to lighten up and brighten it up and be a cartoon was of no interest to me. More than 100 Batman and Robin costumes were created to allow for the range of stunts, from the underwater scenes to scenes involving fire and extreme fighting. Tommy Lee Jones's makeup took four hours to apply. Bruce Tim, writer and producer of Batman, the animated series, said in an interview, I did not enjoy Joel Schumacher's Batman at all. Unlike Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher was a Batman fan. He originally wanted this to be a prequel based on Frank Miller's Batman Year One. Joel Schumacher's decision to put nipples and enlarged cod pieces on the bat costumes, as well as an earring on Robin, caused controversy. It even bothered Batman creator Bob Kane. Schumacher said he wanted the costumes to have an anatomic look, while the earring was supposed to make Robin appear more hip. He also claimed that the basis for the Batman and Robin suits came from the statues of gods of ancient Greece. The original cut was three hours long and much darker, 
heavily exploring Bruce Wayne's psyche and guilt. For the scene where Chase Meridian is visited by Batman on her balcony at night, Nicole Kidman was not wearing any clothing underneath the white silk sheet with which she was covering herself. Ow, ow! I mean, yeah, that's that's an interesting tidbit. I just felt like throwing that in for some reason. Okay, so a couple of IMDb nuggets. The first one is, The bat suit was so heavy that Val Kilmer lost five pounds filming the opening fight scene alone. And I don't necessarily deny that. I just need a fucking source on that because five pounds seems like a lot for one scene. When Dick says he wants to go back to the circus, Bruce replies that the circus must now be halfway to Metropolis. That is the home city of Superman. Thank you, IMDb. I didn't get that subtle hint during the movie, and you really filled me in. I really appreciate it. Okay, so for info and ratings, we have a runtime of 121 minutes. This movie was rated PG-13 by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $100 million. Opening weekend, $52.8 million. Worldwide gross, $336.6 million. IMDb rating, 5.4. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 39%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 32%. Personal rating, 2 out of 5 stars. I just don't really love this one, but it's not unwatchable. It's just, I can only watch it to make fun of it. But it's so dumb, honestly. I can't in good faith recommend it to anybody. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode for today. I plan on doing many more DC-related movies, and honestly, that's why I'm just my own biggest fan, and I love to listen to them, so I figure why not do the movies I like, or at least want to talk about. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.